Hey everyone, welcome back to our show. For the final series of this season, we will be discussing the impacts that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on incarcerated individuals and their families. I'm Bhavna. And I'm Vendela. And this is Women's Health Incarcerated. Today, we're joined with the senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project, and his work is primarily focused on reforming prosecution through litigation and advocacy. He is currently involved in the fight to save detainees from COVID-19 and is here to share his expertise with us. So, without further ado, please welcome Somel Trevedi. So, Somel, thank you so much for joining us today. It is COVID times, so we appreciate you being able to work with us virtually. To start off, we wanted to talk about the incarceration system a bit more broadly. Obviously, prisons and jails are horrible places to be during a pandemic. But how did we get to that place in terms of overcrowding? What could various stakeholders in the system have done before the pandemic to prevent overcrowding? And in terms of stakeholders, we're specifically thinking about police officers, prosecutors, judges, and politicians. That's a great question. And First of all, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to join you, and I'm really excited about the focus of this podcast. It is absolutely correct that COVID has made life in jails and prisons immeasurably more miserable, but it isn't the only thing that makes life that way. And you're right that mass incarceration is the reason why the COVID pandemic has impacted jails and prisons so horribly. We have a mass incarceration problem in America because police and especially prosecutors have overcharged and oversentenced criminal defendants for going on 50 years, if not longer. And that has put immense strain on our jails and prisons, not just in terms of overcrowding, but in terms of the services that they receive, the health care that they receive, and most importantly, the utter dehumanization of people who are caught up in the criminal justice system. Once we decide that someone has quote unquote done something wrong, even though the criminal justice system is actually horrible at finding those people and differentiating between those who truly need to be incarcerated and not, instead we've said, let's throw them all into warehouses, put them in cages, and forget about them. And that has been a very politically easy, and successful method of addressing societal harms, but it hasn't done a whole lot to cure them. And it packed our jails and prisons full of people who are now susceptible to the worst pandemic in a century, and we don't have any way to fix it. In terms of who is impacted, as well as differences in overcrowding and level of resources, are there any significant distinctions between the experiences of people who are in jail versus those who are incarcerated in prisons? So I wouldn't say that there is a, a major distinction on the fundamental problem, which is when you are stuck in a carceral setting, you cannot socially distance, you don't have access to masks and other PPE and other hygienic protocols that allow you to do all the things that you and I are blessed to do every day. So on that metric, it's the same. Of course, in jails, the problem is that while folks are sometimes there for short periods of time, either being held pretrial or on short sentences, so that's, I guess, quote unquote, better, jails have high levels of churn, right? There are people going in and coming out every single day, not just detainees, but lawyers and 
medical staff and you know family members. And that churn is extremely high, particularly in jails. So what that does is it introduces COVID or the risk of COVID at much higher rates, and then also puts the community at higher risk because when people go in, they contract COVID and then they immediately come out. And so that's the problem with jails. And so that's why a lot of the ACLU's work and other organizations are particularly focused on some of America's largest jails, um, because they can become vectors for the disease. In terms of prison, the problem is that they are some of the most marginalized people we have in society. And American society has decided that once you are sentenced and put in prison, we don't care about you anymore. You know, Eighth Amendment be damned. Uh, Even though they have a constitutional right not to be subject to cruel and unusual punishment, including death by pandemic, we seem not to care about that. And that doesn't actually have any practical effect for them. And so getting them released has been exceedingly difficult. There has been some success, I want to say, very clearly, only some success, not nearly enough, in getting folks out of jails or preventing their intake in the first place. Um, you know, some jails have done a decent job of reducing intakes by a little bit, not by enough, but by a little bit. But prisons have been a whole different story, and it has been very, very difficult to get even a handful of people out. What can be done to divert people away from correctional facilities? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And I think I'm glad that you mentioned police and prosecutors earlier, because that's the key here. We need to reevaluate what we consider jailable in America. Uh, We needed to do that before the pandemic, but we especially need to do it now. Many, if not most of the quote unquote crimes that people are in jail for are nonviolent. And even those that we record as violent don't require uh, jailing in the first instance, especially pretrial, and can be dealt with with community solutions and diversion from the criminal system as early in the process as possible, preferably before anybody is even arrested and booked into jail, but certainly before they are prosecuted um, and held in jail for a long period of time pending their trial or a guilty plea. So what we need is conscientious prosecutors, conscientious police chiefs who truly understand public safety to encompass public health. And that's that's something that I'm sure you on this podcast who are focused on public health and women's health understand. But too many people in law enforcement do not understand this. If they If they pick somebody up for sleeping under a bridge and then put them in a jail that's infested with COVID, and then that person gets let back out and potentially could infect other people, have we served public safety or public health at all? No, in fact, we've made it far, far worse. And so we need to, you know, listeners to your podcast, activists, lawyers, uh, organizers, we need to keep pounding that drum that public health is public safety and vice versa. I think that's the best thing that we can do. Definitely. And I actually wanted to know a little bit more about the role of prosecutors. I know you yourself were a prosecutor at one point in your career, and I was wondering if you were willing to share a little bit more about your experience. Sure. So uh, I started my career at a law firm. And then after some years there, I decided to go to the Department of Justice, uh, where I started out as a white collar fraud prosecutor, wanting to uh, right the wrongs of the financial crisis. And white collar fraud prosecutions at the DOJ do not look like most prosecutions in the United States, right? They go slowly. Defendants have 
lawyers. They often have multiple lawyers. They get the benefit of the doubt in many circumstances. They are able to receive all the evidence they need from the government and present their evidence often in a almost cooperative way before the case ever turns to a more adversarial nature. That is the just, just the nature of white collar prosecutions in the federal government. I then switched over to becoming a misdemeanors prosecutor in DC. And that is the other end of the spectrum. And it's a much larger part of the spectrum. Misdemeanors make up 80% of our criminal justice system in any given jurisdiction. And there, it is not a justice system. It's a conveyor belt to put mostly young black and brown men behind bars, uh, or at least subject them to state supervision and control at astounding levels. And there, there's hardly any due process. There is just a criminal charge followed by a plea offer, followed by a threat that their trial will net them a much, much worse penalty, followed by an acceptance of a plea offer and likely some jail time or probation. And round and round we go. That's just how the misdemeanor prosecution system in America works. I did it for three months and I couldn't take it anymore. It was not to me what a justice system would look like. More importantly, we weren't solving any problems. We were putting people in for short amounts of time, just making it harder for them to get out and find work and find housing and provide for their families, thereby making them more likely, not less likely, to seek a life outside uh, the rule of law. And I didn't blame them most of the time. And so I left uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office to go to the ACLU, where I thought we could fix this problem on a systemic level. In that vein of thought, you mentioned that black and brown men are disproportionately being put behind bars. And statistics also show that women are the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population. In your experience as a prosecutor and as a lawyer, can you speak to how you've seen the system impacting women? You're 100% right that women are one of the fastest growing groups of those who are incarcerated. What I have seen is an utter disregard for the unique health concerns of women. We treat female detainees just like we've been treating male detainees, which is to say horrible, but also we fit them into the square peg of male detention. So distinctly female concerns like pregnancy, like menstruation, like particular mental health uh, afflictions that are more prevalent in women. These are completely disregarded, if not used as a penalty, right? We've heard horrific stories of women going through labor pains and being shackled because of it, right? Because the largely male guards in prisons and jails don't know how to deal with it except through harsh and punitive methods. And so particularly now that I'm doing this COVID work and seeing that women are separated from their families and um, not only have to suffer that pain, being separated from their children, but being potentially exposed to a deadly virus that they could then take back to their children. Imagine that feeling. So uh, what we need to do and what a very, very small number of prosecutors are considering now is to recognize that women in many cases are the primary caregivers in their family. If anybody is the primary caregiver, that needs to be recognized, but uh, often it is women, and devise non-carceral solutions for them. So yes, 
if we pick somebody up for drug possession, that they don't need to go to jail at all, in my estimation. But if you're in a jurisdiction where they decide that that is a possibility, but that you would be destroying a family by doing so, again, what's the greater harm? I think it's pretty obvious to most people, and especially most women, that destroying that family will have ripple effects in the community far greater than whatever amount of drugs they were holding. Uh, and therefore, that person, on account of her being a primary caregiver and a woman and a mother, ought to be given special consideration. I don't think that's a controversial position, and yet it's exceedingly rare in our system. Yeah, and not to belabor the prosecutor point, but I had one more question regarding this. I've been seeing in Michigan how our local elections call for more progressive prosecutors, and that's really interesting to me. I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Is that a good area for people to put their energy behind? And have you seen any trends in electing more progressive prosecutors? Yeah, I think this is one of the most important conversations in both criminal justice and American society generally, is the rise of progressive prosecutors, which I think taking the long view is a good thing. Uh, We toiled under a system where prosecutors were rewarded only for being punitive for so long that to see uh, such a sea change and to see prosecutors being part of the solution to mass incarceration is a fantastic thing. However, we're now about five to seven years into this experiment, and I think there are important things to keep your eye on. Uh, One, it is now so electorally popular in some places to be a progressive prosecutor that some people are using the language but not backing it up with action, right? They're talking the talk and not walking the walk. And so voters, educated by podcasts like this, to keep close eye on not only what a prosecutor candidate is saying, but what they are doing. Because it is easy to be a wolf in sheep's clothing in this field, right? You can say all the right things, get elected, maybe tweak around the edges, uh, you know, cut down cash bail, stop prosecuting minor marijuana possession, and seem like a reformer but continue to fuel mass incarceration by other means. So I think this is a precarious time for the movement, right? Where we feel like we've made a lot of progress and we have, but that progress can hit a wall. It's been hitting backlash, right? The Attorney General of the United States is taking time out of his day to bash progressive prosecutors as anarchists and opposed to law and order, you know, judges, attorneys general in states that have elected progressive prosecutors are doing everything they can to turn back those gains. So we ought to fight those. But we also ought to recognize that to truly transform the system, we're going to have to continue to whittle away at the power of prosecutors, even if they are progressive. Because even if they are progressive, they're still in the business of putting people in jails and prisons. So I think it is a nuanced discussion. Uh, I'm glad that we can even have it. I think the movement deserves a lot of credit for ushering in an era of progressive prosecution, but we need to keep our guard up right now. Recent months have brought the Black Lives Matter movement, calls for prison abolition, and issues within the criminal legal system to the forefront, potentially more than they ever have been before. In the midst of not only a pandemic, but also a critical social moment, what do the arrests of protesters say about the way that our society relies on the criminal legal system? Yeah, so 
of course, the images that we're seeing of not only state brutality against the black community, but then state brutality against those protesting state brutality, right, is horrifying. But in many ways, it exemplifies how America has treated protesters for its entire history and really all societal problems throughout its history. You know, violence against protesters is as American as protesting itself, I would say. And so we need to not be surprised that this would be the response of a country that knows really no other way to address societal issues than to treat it criminally and then sick cops on it. We have basically stopped governing in our society to fix large swaths of issues, right? Mental health, jail it. Substance abuse, jail it. Homelessness, jail it. We've lost our public policy creativity, and it has just become so increasingly easy for politicians to say, well, let's increase the criminal penalty for X issue and then wipe their hands of it and, and move on. So that's what's really concerning to me about the police attacks on protesters. Of course, I'm concerned about the First Amendment implications. I'm concerned about what it's doing to divide our country. But I also think it's just a symptom of our inability to engage with the underlying problem without just sending a whole bunch of cops out to beat people up and arrest them because that's actually symptomatic of a larger problem in America that stems from our inability to affix public policy to a problem rather than the criminal law. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. Like Somal emphasizes, the COVID-19 pandemic has made much more apparent the fundamental problems of mass incarceration in our society. While many issues like overcrowding and lack of access to critical resources have always existed in jails and prisons, living in these negligent conditions during a pandemic has further demonstrated our incarceration system's obvious disregard for public health safety. Tune in next week to hear more from Somil on what's specifically happening on the inside to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus, what resources, if any, are available, and how this pandemic plays a role in issues regarding release and other potential changes within the system. Until then. Women's Health Incarcerated works to raise awareness about the experiences of women within our current incarceration system, with a primary focus on health-related issues. The podcast can be found on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you want to learn more about our episodes, view the transcripts to see where we get our information, or find different ways that you could get involved, please visit www.winkthemovement.org. That's www.whincthemovement.org.